So you're telling me you have been in the seminary for six years now. That's correct. And you're still just considered a layperson. I am a layperson. Yeah. And I have been in the seminary for zero years now. Yep. And I am also a layperson. Lay people all around, yeah. Lay people. <laughs> Welcome to Sinner's Take, another Catholic Guys podcast of which we are the worst. I am Eddie. I'm Alec. And I'm Michael. So we are here today with a former co-worker, former boss, former confirmation class leader, and dare I say, a dear friend of mine, Michael. Mike, you are from Korea. Yes. Your family is from Philadelphia. That's correct. Your last name is Fitzpatrick. Yes. Again. You are working in the Diocese of Orange. Mm-hmm. Living in Rome. Yeah, it all makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> Explain that. Explain a little bit of that to me. Well, uh, so I was born in Korea. I was infant, seven months old. My parents, they adopted me from Korea. They lived in Philadelphia at the time. And of course, my dad's last name is Fitzpatrick. So that's how you get the uh, the Korean-Irish <laughs> connection. <laughs> By the way, I'm still, I've still yet to meet another person who has... Another Korean that has an Irish last name. That has an, especially Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick like, was also like the, the most yeah. Irish no, last name. There's no Mick Choi's out there. <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. Mick Not that I. If there are, I'd love o to meet Kim. them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then you. So now you live in Orange. The Diocese of Orange is where you. Correct. And then you were sent to Rome. Correct. So. Uh, so yeah. So I've been a seminarian. Actually. I think I've only been a seminarian for five years. Well, this is my sixth year of being a seminarian. I'm going to my sixth year. Okay. But the first two years of my, my seminary career were in at St. John's, about 40 minutes or so north of Los Angeles. And then the last three years, uh, I've been in uh, in Rome, studying at the, the North American College there. So, yeah. Hmm. So, Mike and I go way back. So, back when I was just a wee sugar cube, freshman year of high school, he was my confirmation teacher for my confirmation class. I was a twerp. I was super annoying. Actually, our whole class was super annoying. <laughs> uh, no comment on that. No comment on that. Uh, then after I uh, graduated from being Catholic, <laughs> I mean, was confirmed. I, uh, they, <laughs> you should play over as I'm talking about it. You should play over the, <clears throat> anyway, so after I was confirmed, I actually helped Mike lead his next class as like a high school leader. And then immediately after that, he was my boss at the summer camp that I worked at for three years in a row. So for like seven years of my life, he was a very crucial point of my faith formation. You could say always a part of my faith formation. So we go way back. It's great to have you around. We reconnected recently because you're not in Rome this upcoming year. You're going to be home for a little bit working at right. a church. Yeah. So we were talking. Something that really stood out last time we talked, you... You're telling me you read Brothers Karamazov in one month. Is that true? Can you confirm or deny? Yeah, I mean, it's my it's my great... Uh, I'm kind of embarrassed because like, that just shows you how much stuff I have going on currently. That I can <laughs> read the Brothers K in, in you know, a month. That's, but, I mean, that's intense. Uh, I mean, I just it's one of those things where um, once I get into the book, it just becomes easy, right? You get really into the story. You want to see what happens. You get invested in the characters. I mean, it's like watching a you know Netflix series, right? You get that's how you end up binge watching you know three or four seasons of whatever TV episode. I would argue, it's orders of magnitude easier to watch a, a whole season of Netflix than to read like a chapter of Brothers K. Yeah, 
mean, that's fair, but I. You did, actually, this is where we brought you on. We, we this is actually an intervention. Your binge reading needs to stop. <laughs> it's becoming a real problem for you. Yeah, that's uh, that's what my family keeps telling me. So. Yeah. <laughs> Go outside. <laughs> I was recently listening to a podcast with Bishop Barron, and he said that he struggled to read Brothers K. Like he had to read. He never. He couldn't read it until he got an audiobook of it. So I guess it doesn't count as reading, but ergo you're better at reading than Bishop, than Bishop Barron. Barron. That is definitely so not true. From now on we're so going to call you scratch Bishop that, Mike. Please. please scratch all of this. Scratch this is all this is all false. <laughs> you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Seminary and Mike think well not uh, layperson Mike. Layperson Mike. That's, thinks that, no, that's that's impressive and I mean it's a beautiful. I I am on book 2 out of how many books? 5? I, I don't remember. I think it's 5 or something like that. The first book is the worst but then once it gets going at book number the worst two, how like the hardest to read it, yeah it's just all like the development and everything but the story doesn't really start uh so i'm currently sitting about halfway through book two and i started this book probably a year ago maybe more mm-hmm. it just it kind of comes and goes in waves is there anything that stood out to you in it from about because it is a, it is a, i mean i've read excerpts of it and then also i'm chugging my way through it but it's it's a beautiful book from everything i can see yeah, I think the hard part when you read it is, well, first of all, you have the narrator, and so he's kind of telling the story, but then Dostoevsky does a good job of kind of getting into the minds of the characters, and so you get, like, so-and-so was thinking this, he's thinking that, so you have these different perspectives, and I think at the very beginning, you're trying to juggle all this, and you're like, okay, like what the heck is going on? You have this narrator, you have all these brothers, you have these other characters, and, so and the, I think the other part, too, is there's a lot of names, yeah, there's, there's just so all Russian names because you got the, you know, each character has, you know, a first name, a last name, but then that middle name, I forgot how you say it, the, the, the father's name, essentially. And they all use nicknames. So it's a lot of names to keep track of. But I think once, for me, that's how I felt reading, like, maybe the first, like, 20 or 50 pages. I was like, what am I, what am I reading? What is this? Yeah. But once I got into it and really started to kind of see where the story was going or where it, and kind of learn about the characters and kind of figure out what makes them tick. Uh, it was like a fascinating to see how it all how it all unwinds. And I think that's fair for me to say. Like, it's it's one of my favorite books. I kind of want to read it again because part of me, again, I read the whole stinking thing in a month, which is kind of dumb. Don't, 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 definitely don't do that. And so the reason why I say don't do that is because I glossed over, I, I went too fast through a bunch of parts. Like there's some beautiful parts in there that I kind of want to revisit because... There's just so much depth. There's a lot going on. I mean, there's the part about, what is it? The, when Christ comes to the Spanish Inquisition. I forget what's the name the of it. The Inquisitor. The Inquisitor. That, that part is very is very rich. Parts in the beginning where um, you have kind of like the elder, the elder Zosima. He's counseling. He's kind of encouraging these these widows or these, um, I think they're these women that, they, or this woman who lost her child recently. And, there, you know, there's beautiful parts like that. That's in the beginning, right? Yeah, it's in the very beginning. Ah, I read that part. <laughs> yeah. I, I have it written down in my notes about how there's there's stuff in there that's good. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that that I just kind of want to revisit. And I would, yeah, I would definitely encourage, maybe the way that you're doing is probably the better way to do it. Nice and slow so you can absorb it. Unlike me. Got a binge. So, it got yeah. a binge, right? We all we all got binge in us that we have to get it out somehow. But I think <coughs> Dostoevsky. Well, also you started with you started with the pinnacle of his work, so it's like I feel like you're going to be unable to read anything else for the rest of your life. Because yeah, that's uh, that's another thing I'm slowly. You've been learning. to the summit. Yeah, I should have I should have saved that, you know. But I mean, I can always go back and read it again. I mean, I, I'm I'm a big believer in reading books again, especially ones that you like, just because you know each time you read it, you're at a different place in your life, and you know most of the books they 
there's a lot of depth to him. There's there's a lot you could mine from. There's a lot that you kind of gloss over maybe the first time, and then maybe the second or third time you, you catch and you're like, oh wow, like that's that's really cool. I missed that the first time. Yeah, and I think well, the thing about movies and things too, how many times you just watch a movie once, but you don't know it. There's so many things that you miss. Everything comes alive more in you understand it so much better if you've read it before. It's like anything else, but we just think that we think books. Oh, I read that. We don't have to read it again because it's difficult because reading books takes time. But I remember, I don't know if anybody in the podcast has picked up on the, I'm on a GK Chesterton high right now because <laughs> we talk about them all the time. But you've been so subtle about been, it. <laughs> uh, and actually the president of Franciscan, my freshman year when he was there, we got a new one my sophomore through senior year. But he, like in every single homily, would use a G.K. Chesterton quote. And he was like always annoying about it. He'd be like, and you know who says something about this? And everyone like in the congregation would go, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> and he'd be like, G.K. Chesterton. He had this like funny voice. And I always always think it's like, man, I'm, I'm never going to become, but I, here I am becoming a Chestertonian. Well, I think there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had, uh, I had a teacher tell us, uh, he taught us moral theology, basically. and very Do whatever very feels good. Yeah, do whatever. But but basically, what he said was, and he's telling, and so like the school I go to, it's mostly uh, religious, you know, guys it's mostly guys, right? Well, <laughs> mostly guys. Yes, mostly guys. All boys school. That's that's what happened. That's what that's what a seminary is basically. You know, I mean, there there are some religious sisters to be fair. Okay? Yeah. But he was telling us that we should become an expert in, like, we should pick maybe one doctor of the church or one saint that's done a lot of writing, and we should become immersed in that person. To the point where our, you know, our parish, our future, our future congregation is is able to say like, oh, like Father, like he really likes, I don't know, like Thomas Aquinas or John on the Cross or someone like that. You just become so immersed in their in their work. I don't want to say you become an expert in it, but you you really are familiar with their works, and to the point where everyone kind of knows that you're oh, that's your dude, you know, yeah. that's your Chesterton dude, you know. <laughs> it's 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 the way it's headed because I remember though, like it was the second time I read it because I started trying to read Orthodoxy a long time ago. I was like, this is nuts. And I get, maybe I just wasn't in the mental state to really take it in. I was going to go back to it. And instead of starting from where I was, I was like, I'm just going to restart the whole book. And I remember just even the first chapter that I read, I was like, it just came alive in a way that, and then I understood the way that he wrote. Because it's like, if Dostoevsky's hard to read, but if you can get into like the way that he writes and you become used to it, then it's not as difficult anymore. And then since then, I haven't really had a problem with reading any of his works because it's just i like get him a little bit better now but these guys you know chesterton dostoevsky they are way smarter than we ever were They're, they were like prophets of their time because they write about society about truth they know more about our society now you could even say than we know about it now and they were writing you know hundreds well chesterton was in the early 1900s and i don't know when dostoevsky he was 1800s, 1800s wasn't he yeah 1800s. and they talk about how the civilization is moving away from god and the damage that's going to cause and how everyone's too busy and how there's too much noise in the world now and now we're sitting here 100 to 200 years later and it's only gotten worse but these people are i don't know how else to word it besides prophets of their day yeah it is it is fascinating to see i mean especially um when you read like a little bit of dostoevsky like he he's able to pinpoint in his current society in 1800s russia the uh hints of materialism and sort of atheist the atheistic approach to to, to the world to, the, to your life and he was able to sort of predict what would happen, that, that being the Soviet Union, the Russian Revolution, 1917, basically a whole government that's just completely atheistic, completely materialistic. His whole premise is like, yeah, this is bad. This is not going to fly. This is not going to, this is where we're heading. It is, it is crazy to, to read him. And yeah, and like you said, he, he knows more about our current society than maybe we do. 
and he's even though he's writing hundreds of years in the past and we forget how much these people have written in their lives they they've written so much it's like how do they even have time to do that i like i like to you know you look at the list of their compiled works and the amount of wisdom in each and every one of them you know alec we talk about all the time it's like if i could even have like one pull quote attributed to me in my whole life like that's awesome but they have like bookends they, they have you can t- fill entire books with just quotes of theirs that are brilliant and i like to envision them like sitting over a candlelit desk like actually writing and or you know gk testin had electricity but like actually writing things down because we want you know we always talk about you want the end game but you don't want to put the work in like they spent their entire life writing probably not liking some of the things they wrote and i, I know we go back to i, I always think about People talk about Aquinas and they say like, oh, imagine how much smarter Aquinas would have been if he was alive in today's society. Like he has the internet, he could access to any book, any knowledge that you need at your fingertips. He would have been able to be so much more efficient, but it's almost like, I think he wouldn't have. He probably would have just been another binge watching Netflix guy because it's so difficult to get anything done. And we talked about this in episodes in the past when like we have so many distractions coming into us because even in your setting, yeah, you have a lot of free time and you're using it to read Mike, but that's not what most people would do. You're like, here's, you have a month off from, like you said, you're on your summer break from the seminary before you start your pastoral year. You have whatever it was, two months off. That's not what people, people would not be taking this free time to put in the work to read and to learn. Instead, they would just be watching Netflix or playing video games or whatever it is. Yeah, I think you hit on something about distractions and concentration. I think that's a huge thing for us today is we're so distracted by our phone. I mean, you really, you can only do one thing at a time. Your brain can only do one thing well at a time. And we're just, the way we're, we're wired now with all these, with all our phones, computers, whatever technology, we, we're just taught to, our brains are taught to just be pulled in all these different directions. Yeah, but I'm really good at multitasking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the fallacy is like, if you're, if you say you're good at multitasking, then it's like, you're really a master of, a master of none. Then. You know, you can't mm-hmm. really do that one thing. I think it's hard too, especially if we talk about habits. You know, if you, you, you just get in the habit of constantly checking your phone or just constantly being on your, you feel like if you have a free moment, I got to be on my phone. Uh, that's a tough habit to break. Or possibly like being on your phone before you go to bed. I'll have to watch something. I have to listen to something right before I go to bed that, or else I won't be able to fall asleep. And if that's just how you've been operating for, you know, for months or years, that's really hard to break. But it can be really, it can be really distracting. It can really, it, it can really hurt your concentration or, and your ability to read. I mean, because reading is concentration and you have to kind of discipline your mind for the moment to just focus on what's in front of you. And I think it's hard for a lot of people today because they're so used to having their minds pulled in so many different directions that they can't focus on just one thing. Yeah, and I, I always, my heart goes out to the to the kids who are growing up right now because like you said, if you've been practicing this habit for you know years now, but these kids who are growing up in this time, it's been their whole life. They've been handed an iPhone since they were five years old or sometimes younger. You know, I'm teaching in the high school and the kids have the worst attention spans in the world. Like I have a bad attention span. I remember Alec and I, we were talking about like the pros and cons of video games. And one of our friends was like, well, we played video games and, you know, we're doing all right. And I'm like, yeah, we're doing all right. But like my attention span is not the way it should be because and I only had a smartphone, I think, like senior year of high school on. And my attention span is shot. And these kids, this is what they grew up with. This is this is the only life they've ever known. And it's so hard for them because, I you know, you want to get mad at them. Like, you need to focus better or you need to, like, stop being addicted to your phone. But it's like you were handed this a- addicting thing from when you even before your brain was even formed. And 
that is before before your brain was formed in the womb your phone knew you <laughs> uh and that's 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 so hard for them I, I my heart goes out to them for sure and it's definitely kind of been a process but having worked in for the year and there's kind of a pushback for like in defense of the this generation the gen z generation defending like any you know that it's not really their fault and how do we deal with them and they're they are really good at some things they're really good at deciphering information things like that but my heart's really starting to move for them where it's it's just it's a difficult life and i i'm very glad that i did not have to deal with it my whole life you know yeah it is it is a tough thing i mean even even today like with me i think it's easier when i'm in rome i don't have any like grand like immediate needs like no one's trying to get in contact with me asap so when i go out i can leave my phone in in my room because no one's really trying to call me or text me immediately and if they are trying to get in contact with me there it's going to be via email and that's kind of like a different you know you can check it whenever but i think just try encouraging people to like try to do that like when you can just don't take your phone places because i notice when i take my phone places and i'm in public and i'm waiting for something or whatever I have just a, a, an un, a, some unconscious, subconscious, like, oh, I got to check my phone. Even when, like, I don't have, like, a any kind of uh, notification. And I think that's, like, that's something that's kind of been programmed in all of us, you know, that growing up in this, this kind of age with technology, that we just kind of, like, as, like, a, a reflex, just check your phone, check your phone. But uh, I don't know. Like, I, I would just encourage people not to just try not bringing it places and just see what happens. Yeah, it does seem like every couple months I go through the phase of, like, when I'm with my friends, we all just put our phones in a basket. But then it never happens. So, <laughs> but there's always the like the 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 fear at the same time. It's I feel it's the fear that is a real fear, but it's not really that important. But we use it to justify all the bad action. Where it's like, yeah, but what if I get an emergency phone call? How many times does that actually happen to the point where it really is that pressing that something? I mean, but I guess you could you could come up with a nightmare scenario where where something bad could happen. But still, it's just we use that more as a crutch to have an excuse why we need to be on it. But also having your phone on you because you're worried that your mom's going to call you with an emergency is much different than checking your phone all the time to see if your mom's calling you with an emergency. I think that's something we can all take and implement or at least be working on. And that's cool, Mike. So you said you got that from your time in the seminary. It's kind of helped you with that, but you said you've completed five years now. So what are some other things that you've learned in those five years? I mean, obviously, I think I've learned, or at least I hope I've learned a decent amount. Specifically, I think being in Rome, the way this our schedule is in the seminary, it's very, very early mornings. We have mass at mass and morning prayer at 6.15. And so one of the things that I, I learned... 6.15 at 615, night, right? 6.15 a.m. 6.15 a.m. <laughs> not, not at night. I wish it was p.m., you know. But, it, you know, you have to get up early. There's really, there's really no way around it, uh, the way the schedule is. And so for me, that was a big adjustment because in college and when I was younger, I was definitely a night owl, staying up late, you know, talking, watching Netflix on my phone, playing video games, stuff like that. That had to change. Uh, just the, the, that kind of lifestyle had to change. And, you know, it took, it took a while. It took me, I think it took me at least a year to get really comfortable getting up at like 5 a.m. consistently after just spending most of my, my college years staying up to like, you know, 11 or 12, getting up at like, you know, like eight or nine, that whole thing, probably sometimes even 10. That really, I really not only learned how to do that, but I learned to really see the value in, in getting up really early. Because the whole idea, at least for me, is that you can take that time that you would normally spend 11 or 12 at night, 1 a.m., whatever, on your computer, doing whatever. 
you can take the, those two or three hours of time and you can sort of, if you go to bed early, you can still have that free time, but you can have it in the morning. You can have it from like, you know, from five to seven. And that's an infinitely better way to spend your time is, is in the morning when your brain is fresh, when you know you have the whole rest of the day. Like it's, it's a really good feeling when, let's say you have something you got to do. You got like a paper you got to write or something like that. And if you put in an hour or two in the morning and you realize, oh my gosh, like I, I've, I've gotten done like most of the work I need to get done today or a big chunk of it. And it's like not even eight o'clock. That is a really good, it's a really good feeling. And it's really, it's really nice to have that time, you know, to, I mean, for, for us in the seminary, it's nice to have time to pray, to read, even just like I, one of the things I do is I just wake up and I kind of just sit there for five minutes and kind of just like try and get reoriented with We can reality. do this again today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just kind of sit there and, you know, make a cup of coffee, that whole thing. But it really, it really is a valuable, a valuable lesson I've learned. I mean, obviously I've learned a lot. Of, I mean, I think I've, hopefully I've learned a lot of things related to, you know, theology and the faith and, and formation, all those things. But from a sort of a human standpoint, just the value of getting up early and just like the value of just like spending time early in the morning and you know preferably for for us like dedicating that time to god like if you if you dedicate that like first couple hours to him like i feel like you'll get that time back with interest you know later so that's that's definitely been a big a big lesson for me shifting a little bit i i'm interested because you've talked a lot about just like you've learned a lot you hope you've learned a lot uh how do you balance all of that with like an actual spiritual life is there ever like the tendency to because i know with me it's difficult because a lot of times when I'm reading or when I'm learning or even when I'm teaching, it's like, I feel like I've done my part in the spiritual life again with the air quotes that are not uh, in the spiritual life for the day. When in reality, I haven't really taken time to pray. I've really only learned or read. And yeah, like reading, you know, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, Dostoevsky, those are better things to read than it is to read nonsense. And it's better to read, but that's not, that's not a substitute for prayer. And I'm curious to see like, how has that balance been for you with you go to school for it all day, every day and prayer is kind of infused into your schedule, but how do you balance that kind of, that kind of lifestyle? Yeah, it is. It is kind of difficult because it's easy to fall into the temptation and think, well, I'm studying theology. I'm reading theology books. Um, even possibly I'm reading people like, yeah, like, like Chesterton or Dostoevsky. That is my substitute for prayer. And then, yeah, those things are good, but ultimately they should be a springboard, at least from my understanding, is they should be sort of a springboard to lead you in, into prayer, uh, to, to have sort of dedicated time specifically for God. Like, I, I think like that's, from what I've learned, that's kind of like, you can't really compromise with that. Like, you know, you have, we have to spend time. And, and the way I see it is not, you know, I have to spend time in prayer, not because like, God, if I don't, God's going to be like mad or something like that. It's more of like, I need to do this because if, if not, if nothing else, if I don't do this, I'm just... I'm just me, you know, I, I can't, I can't really, I'm limited in what I can do as, as a human being, as, as someone who's flesh and blood, like I can't, I'm limited, but if I pray and if I spend that time with God, hopefully I'm, I'm being filled with, with his presence, with his, with his Holy Spirit, that whole thing, I can go out and give that to other people. And I think that's, that's the key. And that's, that's the way I understand prayer and you know, my future ministry, um, the importance of prayer as a priest you know, if I, I can be the most charismatic, I can be the most like jovial person in the world. But if I don't pray, you know, I'm, I'm just a corpse, you know, I'm eventually going to run dry. And uh, there's also, there's, there's a great story. I think it's in one of Cardinal Seurat's books. He's talking about Mother Teresa. 
and he says like there is this priest this italian priest who went to mother Teresa. i can't remember where like went to her, her house or something and was was insistent that he go and see and he see mother Teresa. and of course like finally like mother came and saw this guy and he said something along the lines of you know mother what 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 the kind of what must i do to you inherit know, to eternal, priest, life. eternal life <laughs> i mean but sort of very similar yeah. to like what, what that story with christ mother Teresa said to him how much are you praying the guy the, the priest was kind of just like a little bit embarrassed and he said like well you know i'm praying liturgy hours I'm praying rosary and she's just like it's not enough like it's it's, it's not enough the priest was kind of taken aback because he was thinking okay like here's somebody who's known to be the sort of the i guess the poster person for active ministry right like act, if there's anybody who's gonna say like oh like you know your ministry your active work is your prayer it's gonna be mother Teresa. But no, she's not saying that at all. She's saying like you need to spend more time in prayer because it's like if you if you if you don't, you're just you're you're limited. You're a person, right? But if but it, but rather if you're filled with God, then what you can give is infinite. And, and he uh, turned and walked away sad for he watched a lot of Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that 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 story always struck me as like man, like you know, as someone who wants to be a priest is like well. I, I can't not do this. You know, mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's very, it's very important and not because, but just because like I, I'm, I'm nobody, you know, I'm, I'm just a person, but if I'm filled with God, then, you know, I, I can do infinitely greater things than just me. So I th- I'm sure you can, you probably have experiences of it, but you can tell when somebody has gone stale, like they're, they're scholarly striving for whatever it might be. Theology has kind of gone stale and their ministry goes stale their personality goes still. I remember me and you, we were uh, riffing about something a little while ago. We both had an encounter with kind of like one of the people who's in the Catholic famous circle. We both just had like a very like turned off experience to them. And we were, it was just like, you can kind of tell when somebody is, they're not living out, they're not pr- praying enough where it's you, where you pursue the scholarly almost to the point at the, at the hindrance of the discipleship aspect of the faith where it's easy to pursue theology as a, an academic thinks it, it makes sense and it's easy enough in that regard. And yeah, you can, everybody kind of want, wants to make their own name and they want to have their own experience. They want to write their books and they want to, whatever it is and be the smartest person in the room. But sometimes it just comes across so bad. And the problem is, is if that transitions into your ministry life, especially as a priest, but even in a podcast or in, uh, you know, the school system or in your work setting, like, bad things are going to happen. It's ultimately going to do more damage to the church than it ever is going to do good. I, I think it's, um, it's, a, it's one thing like you can't give what you don't have. And that's, I'm a big believer in that. And so like, I think a lot of these people who you see who are very smart intellectually, who know their stuff, but they, they seem to be missing something. And, and again, you don't want to judge people. You don't want to like totally judge the person's character by, by what they, what they say, or what they teach, but it just seems like they're missing something. And the whole idea is like, you can't give, if you haven't had like a real sort of encounter with, with God, with Christ and his son, with Christ, that you can't really give that away then. If you've never, if you've never experienced that for yourself, that, that kind of, that kind of love, that kind of mercy, if you've never experienced that for yourself, how can you give that to other people? And I think like, that's a big, that's one thing I think about when I see someone who's very, very smart academically with, uh, with theology or with whatever it is, scripture, but it just seems like they, they, they only come at it from the intellectual approach. And I think it's just they can't they can't give what they don't have, you know. Yeah, and I think just like you, if you just even run the numbers, like there's tons of people. I mean, I don't know about tons, but a lot of people who have PhDs in theology who no longer practice the faith, or there's tons of people who, 
even think of somebody every atheist can explain the arguments maybe a lot of them incorrectly but at least have like a decent understanding of like the theistic arguments for god's existence they can explain them because they view them as arguments now and the, plenty of them leave the faith and fall away or we're always away but if you take like for example like the caricature of like the old italian grandmother who like goes to mass every day prays every day and just like loves christ she probably cannot give the arguments for god's existence she just believes it and those people they never fall away from the faith because if anything it's it's more important to have that prayer aspect that relationship aspect than it ever is to have the scholarly not to downplay the scholarly at all because it's very important but yeah without without one or the other it it completely falls away yeah, I think you need both. It's all I mean, you know, Catholicism is always both and, you know, and you, you can't you can't just expect I mean and the opposite's also true too. You can't just expect, oh, I'm just gonna pray and I'm not gonna learn, I'm not gonna study, I'm not gonna know the truths of the faith. I'm gonna just pray because it's me and God. And I think that's also a danger too. It's kind of the opposite of the, the completely intellectual approach, but just to think that, oh, I don't need to study, I don't need to do anything. But then it's like, well, how do you know these truths? Like how do you know for sure? I think that's also that's also a temptation too. But so, but the solution is always, I think, just both and. You know, you need both a strong spiritual life and uh, a knowledge of theology. And and ideally, they would both help one another, you know, each other. And that's the mm-hmm. whole thing with seminary is, you know, we're, our our studies in theory should be helping us become more prayerful men. In our prayer, we should want to be like to learn more and to be like, oh, like I want to learn more about about God, about this relationship that I have, about this essentially this person that I, that I love. I want to learn more about, about him. And they should be mutually enriching each other is, is I think what hopefully I think that what they're going for, you know, with the whole formation yeah. thing. And that's definitely, how it was put to me was don't be studying more than you're praying. So study as much as you can and then pray more than that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, Especially like, because there's people who are smarter and not as smart, you know, there's people who struggle with the grand concepts of things. And so, the, but like to make an effort to the, to understand to the, your, your highest capability and like we never, none of us ever reach our full capability when it comes to knowledge and, and whatever it might be. So don't be the person, you know, who says, well, like, it's not really my thing. Like, I don't really, I don't like to study that because it's too lofty about, but there's read mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. That is a super easy read. And if that's too difficult too, there's, there's other things you can do to like, take steps into it like you you cannot just jump in and read dostoevsky that's just not going to happen but I mean, you could you could you could <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be really hard <laughs> yeah if you want to read a word a minute that but i think that this is what's so frustrating about uh a lot of times the people who love thomas aquinas and i love thomas aquinas he's probably the smartest person who's ever lived i would make the strong argument for but people forget that like he was a borderline mystic of the faith he had real encounters with the person of Christ. He spent, he would weep in mass while he was saying mass. He would go into the chapel and just like hold on to the tabernacle and just pray for hours. And he was so filled with the love of God that he, and like, like when, what the famous quote his probably his most famous quote when after he write, finishes, finished writing the Summa and God says to him, you've written well of me. What would you have me give to you? And he says, nonisite domine, which means a couple different translations, but essentially nothing if not you, God. Like, I don't want any anything that is not you himself or you yourself. And it's a beautiful thing. But people try to like take that aspect away from him and just be like, I can just do the intellectual part of it. And that's all I need. Because, But like, look at the, the people who are known in the church for being the most 
like read you can you, we can talk about Augustine's theology all we want, but read the confessions and talk about his relationship with God that he had. You can't you can't take them away. Yeah, I mean they feed each other, right? So you come to some truth in prayer and then you want to, you know, reason your way to it or how does this fit in with my whole view of things, but then the same other way where you might discover something that you know, in your studying that is the case or must be the case and then you take that to prayer to better understand it or how does that manifest in my life and the lives of those around me, they really do lean on each other. Yeah, definitely. I think I think it was Balthazar or someone like that said that theology is best done on your knees. I think that's that's a great image for for everyone who, you know, for every, for all Christians and for all, especially for people studying theology. It's like that it should always it should, we should always approach the mystery like as a mystery like that, like on your knees. And I think if we do that, then you know, will any kind of temptation towards uh, to be, you know, any kind of temptation towards uh, exaltedness or to think highly of yourself um, can be kind of flushed away. It's kind of it's kind of touching on, and it's something another thing that I feel pretty passionately about is that people like to pick and choose whatever it is. Like I'm more of a scholar than a than a, a prayerful person. I'm more of a prayerful person than a scholar, and it's not really. You don't really get that option. It's, we, we see it all the time too with like the whole traditional Catholic versus non-traditional Catholic. Like, oh, I I hate the new or, the new mass because I think it's wrong, or the Latin mass is old and outdated, or whatever it is. But like the idea is that you know there or there's people the really annoying one is the traditional Catholic versus like uh, social justice Catholic, where it's like I I don't worry about the tradition, the prayer aspect, because I need to help the poor or the other way around where it's like, I care a lot about tradition and therefore I don't really care so much about social justice. It's, we don't have those options in, in Christianity, especially in Catholicism is not, you know, shopping cart Catholic as it's called, but you don't get to, you don't get to not like the new mass. You may prefer the Latin mass, just like you may prefer not the Latin mass, but you don't get to say that they're wrong. You don't get to say that I don't, there's nothing for me in the new mass. The Eucharist is for you in the new mass and whatever it might be. And you don't get to say like, I don't worry about social justice because I'm worried more about the traditions of the church. Well, you need to have both. Like you said earlier, both. And the Chesterton quote that says the church has always hated, uh, has always loved red and white, but has always hated pink. It's not this middle ground that you get to stand in. And it's not just red or just white. It's, you have to have red and all of its redness and white and all of its whiteness without them mingling. It's the social justice all the way to, to wherever Catholic morality takes you and then the traditions of the church all the way as passionately you can have for those as well. Yeah. And that places a demand on you because if you feel like you can cut out, like you were saying, I'm so in the tradition that I don't care as much about the social justice. Well, as soon as you recognize that you can't cut that out, then it places a demand of now you have to act on how are you helping the poor? How are you contributing? Where before you're kind of letting yourself off the hook by saying, well, I'm doing more of this, so I don't need to do that. I, yeah, I agree with everything that you guys are saying. And it just seems that it's a very divisive time in the church. You know, it's like you have these two camps. It's almost like you, you, you can't, you can say like, oh, I, if you say I like Pope Francis, or I like someone who's associated with kind of liberal Catholicism, people automatically assume that, oh, well then this guy, this guy's liberal, this guy's this way. He doesn't like, he, there's no way he likes the, the Latin mass. You know, you can't, you can't have it both ways. But that's kind of the state that we're in is, is everything is very divisive specifically too, like when we're talking about the liturgy, the liturgy is so, you almost can't have sane, normal discussions with people about, about the liturgy, about what they think, like what the liturgy should be, 
about preferences in music, about you know the extraordinary form, the ordinary. You almost can't have these discussions because they just turn for me at least. Oh, I can imagine hostile. the seminary, especially a seminary in Rome. It probably people have their camps and probably stick very uh, adamantly to them. Yeah, and I, and I think it's it's unfortunate too. I think because ultimately the liturgy is something that all Christians we all we all love. You know, it's 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 the presence of Christ. Uh, it's God. It's essentially it's the you know the kind of the curtain, the veil being lifted. You know, heaven on earth. And I think it's something that we should be able to talk with other people about and have civil, normal conversations about and say like, oh, this is something I, this is something I love. This is something you love. Oh, this is great. But unfortunately, it kind of devolves into personal preference. We kind of let personal preference get in the way. Again, our own biases get in the way and really our own pride. I think ultimately that's where it comes from is our own pride in, in thinking that the liturgy should be this way. When really the liturgy is something given to us by God and uh, we're just kind of caretakers of it. This is the Christianity, both and. It's a double-edged sword with everything, faith and reason. Uh, you know, the traditions of the church and the lively, you could even make the argument like anti-cultural progressiveness of the church even. Like, goes against the culture, but is always moving towards something new. You know, the it's it's ahead of us. The The end game for the church is ahead of us. It's not behind us. You know, there was a lot of problems in the day. There's still a lot of problems now. Where we need to move forward. But it's the the lion and the lamb. It's not, it's not lion... And it's like it's like the church needs to be lion and lamb. Jesus is lion and lamb. He has his aspects of him that are the lamb fullness and then lion fullness. And this is where people get confused because they think like when they say lion lays down with the lamb, they what they really mean in their head is the lion becomes like a lamb so they can both be lambs together. But that's not it at all is that the beauty of the Catholic Church is that the lion lays down with the lamb while still maintaining all of its ferociousness and power and courage and strength of a lion and the humility of the of the lamb. They live together, they dwell together, and they've found a way to both exist because they need to exist in the church for it to be successful. And we, when we draw these divides in it, it's just, we're never going to help the world if we are divided in these aspects. The divisiveness in the church, I think it, it can be kind of pessimistic. Like, I think people develop a pessimistic attitude, and it's easy to get down and say, like, oh, like, the church is so divisive. But I, I really believe that, well, first of all, the divisiveness in the church is not new. It's been there since the beginning. I mean, you go all the way back to Acts with Peter and Paul, mm -hmm. uh, just different, you know, two different sort of viewpoints. But I mean, really, the church has always been kind of divisive and it's been divided. And there's always been kind of, you know, this, this division, even though like, you know, the church is all about unity. But unfortunately, the church made it, the church as a human institution made up of, of human beings. We're, we're going to be, we, we don't get along with each other. And I think that's always been there from the beginning. So I'm not, with the, for me personally, I, I'm not discouraged when I see this going on. I mean, in many ways, I'm, I'm encouraged by it. Like, I, I, would, I would start to be worried if, you know, everyone was kind of just like, oh, everything's perfect. There's nothing wrong. The world loves us. You know, that's when I'd be like, okay, wait a minute. You know, too quiet here. Wait a minute. Something, something's, something's up. It's easy to get, get down on with everything going on in the church, whether we're talking about, like, you know, the abuse crisis, whether we're talking about... I mean, every, all the kind of issues in the church. It's easy to develop pessimistic attitude, but the way I see it, I'm very encouraged. I'm very, uh, I think it's a very important time in the church. And I think it's, it's a time for, um, you know, for, for all of us to, to really examine it. It's like, okay, like what, this is what's going on. But instead of complaining about it, like, how can I make it better? Like, how can I make this a better, a better church? And it's, it's, for me, it's an encouraging time to be, to be, to be a Christian, to be a part of the church. So. Yeah, there is a, there is a lot of hope in the struggle, you know, with everything. 
probably one of the greatest one-liners of all time. I forget which cardinal it was, but it was when Napoleon was invading Italy. He was and he went and he said, "I will destroy you." He's like, "I'm going to destroy the Catholic Church." Basically, is what he said. Yeah, and the cardinal came, like just snapped back at him and was like. We clergymen have been trying to destroy it for 1,500 years. You think you're going to be able to do it in a day? But it's the idea that, yeah, like even amidst all the conflict, even amidst all the, the drama, it's people are moving forward. I mean, there really is only one way forward for us in general. And I mean, as, as Mike was talking about, it's just it has to be personal prayer. Going that, I never heard that Mother Teresa story, but I think that that's very beautiful is that what, what change are you, what change can you possibly hope to make if you're not first willing to pray? and pray a lot. And I think that that's important. I think that, like you said, that's probably the biggest lesson that you've taken away from the seminary, I would say. Yeah, I think it's just, it's just prayer and just, I mean, even for me personally, uh, being, studying in Rome is a wonderful experience and I got to experience a real blessing that, uh, that I'm very thankful for. But there's a lot of difficult things that go with it. I mean, you're in a new country, you're 6,000 miles away, you're away from family and friends, you know, during, during holidays and, and, and such and such. But the one thing that I've, I really learned uh, that I really feel like I've grown in is just that aspect of, of, uh, of learning to just rely on God alone and being like, well, my family, I, you know, when you're, when you're kind of taken away from your comfort zone, from everything you've known, like your family, your friends, once you're, when you're taken out of that, what, what do you have? Like, what do you have to cling to? And ultimately for me, what I've discovered is, you know, you have God. And it's like I've I've grown in that aspect of prayer and of my relationship with God is and but it but it took that kind of experience that kind of like kind of extreme experience, and I, I would say yeah that's the biggest lesson I've learned is just like with with this whole thing with being a priest or with with anything with any kind of vocation, it's it's really Him alone that we we have to rely on we can't rely on ourselves and I know it's kind of cliche like obviously, but it's true you know but I think it's a hundred percent true and it's something that I've I guess I've always known, but I, it wasn't until I really experienced it for myself that I was able to fully understand, if that makes sense. You know, it's like, I've always known, oh, you got to rely on God, rely on God. But then it's like, once you're really put in dire straits and in, in those tough situations, and then it's like, okay, it's sink or swim. Like I have to really rely on God or kind of perish in a way to be kind of dramatic. But once I, once I've, once I learned that, and it was only until I, I've been put in those situations that I, that I learned that. Um, and I think that's the biggest, that's the biggest thing I've learned most. That's, that's like the best thing I got, you know, from, yeah. from seminary, you know, that's a good <laughs> thing to have because that'll pay dividends going forward. I think into your priesthood too, will be, if, if that's the flagship of your priestly life, it'll be, it'll be good. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on, Mike. I'm sure we'd love to have you on lay, again. If lay person, Mike. Else, lay person, Mike. <laughs> if there's anything else that's on your heart or something that, you like to discuss while you, we have you here i'm sure we uh we'll see you again yeah thank you it was a lot of fun and uh i hope to do it again any last minute thoughts you want to leave yeah definitely i'm not a good reader i'm not on the same level as bishop Aaron. <laughs> i will emphasize that i'm gonna re-emphasize those people that. already turned off the podcast the people who are turned <laughs> yeah. off by that line that's they're, uh they're that's not, not around true. anymore i'm remember lay person michael fitzpatrick that's... <laughs> all, all right. right for all of us here at sinners presents God bless. <laughs>